Some Terms of Thought in Modern Philosophy, Essay Number 4, A Long Way Round to Nirvana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Some Terms of Thought in Modern Philosophy, Five Essays by George Santayana. Essay Number 4. A long way round to nirvana development of a suggestion found in freud's beyond the pleasure principle that the end of life is death may be called a truism since the various kinds of immortality that might perhaps supervene would none of them abolish death but at best would weave life and death together into the texture of a more comprehensive density the end of one life might be the beginning of another if the creator had composed his great work like a dramatic poet assigning successive lines to different characters death would then be merely the cue at the end of each speech summoning the next personage to break in and keep the ball rolling or perhaps as some suppose all the characters are assumed in turn by a single supernatural spirit who amid his endless improvisations is imagining himself living for the moment in this particular solar and social system death in such a universal monologue would be but a change of scene or of metre while in the scramble of a real comedy it would be a change of actors in either case every voice would be silenced sooner or later and death would end each particular life in spite of all possible sequels the relapse of created things into nothing is no violent fatality but something naturally quite smooth and proper this has been set forth recently in a novel way by a philosopher from whom we hardly expected such a lesson namely professor sigmund freud he has now broadened his conception of sexual craving or libido into a general principle of attraction or concretion in matter like the eros of the ancient poets hesod and empedomecles the windows of that stuffy clinic have been thrown open that smell of acrid disinfectants those hysterical shrieks have escaped into the cold night the troubles of the sick soul we are given to understand as well as their cure after all flow from the stars I am glad that Freud has resisted the tendency to represent this principle of love as the only principle in nature. Unity somehow exercises an evil spell over metaphysicians. It is admitted that in real life it is not well for one to be alone, and I think pure unity is no less barren and graceless in metaphysics. You must have plurality to start with, or trinity, or at least duality, if you wish to get anywhere, even if you wish to get effectively into the bosom of the One, abandoning your separate existence. Freud, like Empedocles, has prudently introduced a prior principle for love to play with, not strife, however, which is only an incident in love, but inertia, or the tendency towards peace and death. Let us suppose that matter was originally dead, and perfectly content to be so, and that it still relapses, when it can, into its old equilibrium. 
but the homogeneous as spencer would say when it is finite is unstable and matter presumably not being coextensive with space necessarily forms aggregates which have an inside and an outside the parts of such bodies are accordingly differently exposed to external influences and are differently related to one another this inequality even in what seems most quiescent is big with changes destined to produce in time a wonderful complexity it is the source of all uneasiness of life and love Quote, let us imagine writes freud in an undifferentiated vesicle of sensitive substance then its surface exposed as it is to the outer world is by its very position differentiated and serves as an organ for receiving stimuli this morsel of living substance floats about in an outer world which is charged with the most potent energies and it would be destroyed if it were not furnished with protection against stimulation on the other hand the sensitive cortical layer has no protective barrier against excitations emanating from within the most prolific sources of such excitations are the so-called instincts of the organism the child never gets tired of demanding the repetition of a game he always wants to hear the same story instead of a new one insists inexorably on exact repetition and corrects each deviation which the narrator lets slip by mistake according to this an instinct would be a tendency in a living organic matter impelling it towards reinstatement of an earlier condition one which it had abandoned under the influence of external disturbing forces a kind of organic elasticity or to put it another way the manifestation of inertia in organic life if then all organic instincts are conservative historically acquired and directed toward regression towards reinstatement of something earlier we are obliged to place all the results of organic development to the credit of external disturbing and distracting influences the rudimentary creature from which its very beginning not have wanted to change would if circumstances had remained the same have always merely repeated the same course of existence it would be counter to the conservative nature of instinct if the goal of life were a state never hitherto reached it must be rather an ancient starting point which the living being left long ago and to which it harks back again by all the circuitous paths of the development the goal of life is death through a long period of time the living substance may have had death within easy reach until decisive external influences altered in such a way as to compel it to ever greater deviations from the original path and to ever more complicated and circuitous routes to the attainment of the goal of death these circuitous ways of death faithfully retained by the conservative instincts would be neither more nor less than the phenomena of life as we know it End quote. freud puts forth these interesting suggestions with much modesty admitting that they are vague and uncertain and what is even more important to notice mythical in their terms 
but it seems to me that, for all that, they are admirable, counterblast to prevalent follies. When we hear that there is, animating the whole universe, an elan vital, or general impulse, towards some unknown but single ideal, the terms used are no less uncertain, mythical, and vague. But the suggestion conveyed is false. False, I mean, to the organic source of life and aspiration, to the simple naturalness of nature. Whereas the suggestion conveyed by Freud's speculation is true, in what sense can myths and metaphors be true or false? In what sense that, in terms drawn from moral predicaments or from literary psychology, they may report the general movement and the permanent issue of material facts, and may inspire us with a wise sentiment in their presence. In this sense, I should say that Greek mythology was true, and Calvinist theology was false. The chief terms employed by a psychoanalyst have always been metaphorical, unconscious wishes, the pleasure principle, the Oedipus complex, narcissism, the censor. Nevertheless, interesting and profound vistas may be opened up in such terms to the tangle of events in a man's life, and a fresh start may be made with fewer encumbrances and less morbid inhibition. The shortcomings of our description, Freud said, would probably disappear if, for psychological terms, we could substitute physiological or chemical ones. These too only constitute a metaphorical language, but one familiar to us for a much longer time, and perhaps also much simpler. All human discourse is metaphorical, in that our perceptions and thoughts are adventitious signs for their objects, as names are, and by no means copies of what is going on materially in the depths of nature, but just as the sportsman's eye, which yields but a summary graphic image, can trace the flight of a bird through the air quite well enough to shoot it and bring it down, so the myths of a wise philosopher about the origin of life, or of dreams, though expressed symbolically, may reveal the permanent movement of nature to us, and may kindle in us just sentiments and true expectations in respect to our fate. For his own soul is the bird this sportsman is shooting. Now I think these new myths of Freud's about life, like his old ones about dreams, are calculated to enlighten and to chasten us enormously about ourselves. The human spirit, when it awakes, finds itself in trouble. It is burdened for no reason it can assign, with all sorts of anxieties about food, pressures, pricks, noises, and pains. It is born, as another wise myth has it, in original sin, and the passions and ambitions of life, as they come on, only complicate this burden and make it heavier, without rendering it less incessant or gratuitous. Whence this fatality, or whither does it lead? It comes from heredity, and it leads to propagation. When we ask how heredity could be started or transmitted, our ignorance of nature and of past times reduces us to silence or to wild conjectures. Something, let us call it matter, must always have existed, and some of its parts, under pressure of the others, must have got tied up into knots, 
like the mainspring of a watch, in such a violent and unhappy manner, that when the pressure is released they fly open as fast as they can, and unravel themselves with a vast sense of relief. Hence the longings to satisfy latent passions with the fugitive pleasure in doing so. But the external agencies that originally wound up that mainspring never cease to operate. Every fresh stimulus gives it another turn, until it snaps, or grows flaccid, or is unhinged. Moreover, from time to time, when circumstances change, these external agencies may encrust that primary organ with minor organs attached to it. Every impression, every adventure, leaves a trace, or rather a seed, behind it. It produces a further complication in the structure of the body, and a fresh charge which tends to repeat the impressed motion in season and out of season. Hence, that perpetual docility or ductility in living substance which enables it to learn tricks and to remember facts, and, when the seeds of past experience marry and cross in the brain, to imagine new experiences, pleasing or horrible. Every act initiates a new habit, and may implant a new instinct. We see people, even late in life, carried away by political or religious contagions, or developing strange vices. There would be no peace in old age, but rather a greater and greater obsession of all sorts of cares, were it not that time, in exposing us to many adventurous influences, weakens or discharges our primitive passions. We are less greedy, less lusty, less hopeful, less generous. But these weakened primitive impulses are naturally by far the strongest and most deeply rooted in the organism, so that, although an old man may be converted, or may take up some hobby, there is usually something thin in his elderly zeal, compared with the heartiness of youth, nor is it edifying to see a soul in which the plainer human passions are extinct, becoming a hotbed of chance delusions. In any case, fresh habit, taking root in the organism, forms a little mainspring, or instinct of its own, like a parasite, so that an elaborate mechanism is gradually developed, where each lever and spring holds the other down, and all hold the mainspring down together, allowing it to unwind itself only very gradually, and meantime keeping the whole clock ticking and revolving, and causing the smooth outer face which it turns to the world, so clean and innocent, to mark the time of day amiably for the passer-by. But there is a terrible complicated labor going on beneath, propelled with difficulty, and balanced precariously with much secret friction and failure. No wonder that the engine often gets visibly out of order, or stops short. The marvel is that it ever manages to go at all. Nor is it satisfied with simply revolving, and when at last dismounted, starting afresh in the person of some seed it has dropped, a portion of its substance, with all its concentrated instincts, wound up tightly within it, and eager to repeat the ancestral experiment. All this growth is not merely material and vain. Each clock, in revolving, strikes the hour, even the quarters, and often with lovely chimes. These chimes we call perceptions, feelings, purposes, and dreams, 
and it is because we are taken up entirely with this mental music, and perhaps think that it sounds of itself, and needs no music-box to make it, that we find such difficulty in conceiving nature of our own clocks, and are compelled to describe them only musically, that is, in myths. But the ineptitude of our aesthetic minds to unravel the nature of mechanism does not deprive these minds of their own clearness and euphony. Besides sounding their various musical notes, they have the cognitive function of indicating the hour and catching the echoes of distant events or of maturing inward dispositions. This information and emotion, added to incidental pleasures in satisfying our various passions, make up the life of an incarnate spirit. They reconcile it to the external fatality that has wound up the organism and is breaking it down, and they rescue this organism and all its works from the indignity of being a vain complication and a waste of motion. That the end of life should be death may sound sad, yet what other end can anything have? The end of an evening party is to go to bed, but its use is to gather congenial people together that they may pass the time pleasantly. An invitation to the dance is not rendered ironical because the dance cannot last forever. The youngest of us, and the most vigorously wound up, after a few hours, has had enough of sinuous stepping and prancing. The transitoriness of things is essential to their physical being, and not at all sad in itself. It becomes sad by virtue of a sentimental illusion, which makes us imagine that they wish to endure, and that their end is always untimely. But in a healthy nature it is not so. What is truly sad is to have some impulse frustrated in the midst of its career, and robbed of its chosen object, and what is painful is to have an organ lacerated or destroyed when it is still vigorous, and not ready for its natural sleep and dissolution. We must not confuse the itch which our unsatisfied instincts continue to cause with the pleasure of satisfying and dismissing each of them in turn. Could they all be satisfied harmoniously, we should be satisfied once for all and completely. Then, doing and dying would coincide throughout and be a perfect pleasure. The same insight is contained in another wise myth which has inspired morality and religion in India from time immemorial. I mean the doctrine of karma. We are born, it says, with a heritage, a character imposed and a long task assigned, all due to the ignorance which in our past lives has led us into all sorts of commitments. These obligations we must pay off, relieving the pure spirit within us from its accumulated burdens, from debts and assets both equally oppressive. We cannot disentangle ourselves by mere frivolity, nor by suicide. Frivolity would only involve us more deeply in the toils of fate, and suicide would but truncate our misery and leave us forever a confused failure. When life is understood to be a process of redemption, its various phases are taken up in turn without haste and without undue attachment. Their coming and going have all the keenness of pleasure, the holiness of sacrifice, and the beauty of art. The point is to have expressed and discharged all that was latent in us, and to this perfect relief various temperaments and various traditions assign different names, calling it having one's day, or doing one's duty, 
or realizing one's ideal, or saving one's soul. The task, in any case, is defined and imposed on us by nature, whether we recognize it or not. Therefore, we can take true moral progress, or fall into real errors. Wisdom and genius lie in discharging this prescribed task, and in doing it readily, cleanly, and without distraction. Folly, on the contrary, imagines that any scent is worth following that we have an infinite nature, or no nature in particular, and that life begins without obligations, and can do business without capital, and that the will is vacuously free, instead of being a specific burden and a tight hereditary knot to be unraveled. Some philosophers without self-knowledge think that the variations and further entanglements which the future may bring are the manifestation of spirit, but they are, as Freud has indicated, imposed on living beings by external pressure, and take shape in the realm of matter. It is only after the organs of spirit are formed mechanically that spirit can exist, and can distinguish the better from the worse in the fate of those organs, and therefore in its own fate. Spirit has nothing to do with infinite existence. Infinite existence is something physical and ambiguous. There is no scale in it, and no center. The depths of the human heart are finite, and they are dark only to ignorance, deep and dark as a soul may be when you look down into it from outside. It is something perfectly natural, and the same understanding that can unearth our suppressed young passions and dispel our stubborn bad habits can show us where our true good lies. Nature has marked out the path for us beforehand. There are snares in it, but also primroses, and it leads to peace. End of essay number four.